Hello again, friends of the forest. This is our last bonus episode before the release of the second half of our season. We are so excited for you to hear the work of these talented and amazing artists. Today, please enjoy this radio interview with Erica Smith, the writer of Rumpelstiltskin, a retelling. Join us again in two weeks for our next story episode, and until then, enjoy. Welcoming to the program, Erica Smith, writer of Rumpelstiltskin, a retelling for the new podcast, Feminist Fairy Tales. Hello, Erica. Hello. Welcome to the program. Well, thanks. Would you please introduce yourself to our listeners? Well, you just did it very well, but uh, I'll, I'll take a swing at it. My name is Erica Smith. I am a frequent playwright for The Coil Project, as well as The Coil Project Variety Hour. You may well recognize Erica's voice if you're a regular listener of the program. She has written quite a number of pieces for us and performed in even more. But this is the first time that you've been on the show as an outside artist, as it were. Yeah, yeah, that's true. So how did you come to be involved with Feminist Fairy Tales? I know Jenny and Madeline through an acting class, Matthew Corzine's uh, Meisner Workshop, that I started doing, gosh, a few years ago now. And the workshop and class involves a lot of of writing, actually, and and performing. And some of the stuff that I've performed has been my own stuff. And um, I've long been an admirer of Jenny and Madeline's stuff and and been wanting to work with them for a while. And uh, they approached me about, you know, writing a piece. And I thought, well, that sounds awesome. Oh, no, (laughs) because I don't write like issue style plays most of the time. There's not a lot of social issue aspects to what I write. So writing something that is explicitly feminist was a little intimidating, but I was just like, no, I am determined to make this work because I want to work with these these two fine ladies. 
So I was just like, yes, let me get over my panic here for a second and I'll take that on. These two fine ladies being Jenny Bissell and Madeline Regina, the creators of uh, Feminist Fairy Tales. Yes. Now you talked about writing something that was explicitly feminist. Is that the approach that you took or did you end up taking a different approach in the end? What I did was try to think of an aspect of feminism that, that really speaks to me and kind of, it came down to the selection of the fairy tale that I was going to write. So it was, what fairy tale do I know well enough that I don't have to do like a ton of research because research and me, we don't really get along and which has aspects that I can adapt to have something about feminism that speaks to me personally. And because of the, the nature of the project, I, I did want to take on something that could take a feminist bent. And so that's how I eventually landed on Rumpelstiltskin. So by examining feminism for an aspect that spoke to you, you ended up on Rumpelstiltskin. Pretty much. I was running through uh, fairy tales that I was familiar with and thinking, how can I shape this? How can I write to this fairy tale specifically with a feminist bent? And there were a few that I came up with and I was like, well, that one's really obvious. I, I'm sure someone's already doing that one. Or this one, I kind of know, but I don't know well enough to, to turn it into something that is mine. And then Rumpelstiltskin was like, oh, okay, this is a story that I know. And it made me think of a few things that I could really work with and dive into. And so there were a few angles that I was thinking about approaching, but what it came down to was Rumpelstiltskin as viewed through a lens of reproductive freedom, which is not something that before this year, I would really have thought about at all <laughs> as someone who has never wanted children, who grew up expecting that she would have them just because that's what I grew up with. That's what women did. When they got out of school, they might've gotten a job, but they probably got married right away and started having kids. And that's, so that's just what I expected would happen and what I was planning to have happen. And then like it started occurring to me, I don't actually want to do that. Do I have to? Wait a minute. Do I not have to have kids? And like having that whole thing occur to me was, it was one of the earliest aspects of feminism that I latched onto really as this is something that's important to me. Hmm. That's really interesting. You mentioned that this was sort of a, a gateway aspect of feminism, so to speak. Is that, is that an accurate way of putting it? I think it's the first thing that was not necessarily radical to my mind. I think it was the first thing that I perceived as an aspect of feminism, um, rather than just, I think it is wrong that girls are told that they, they have to do a thing or they can't do a thing. In seventh grade, the upperclassmen being the sixth through eighth graders were given the responsibility of like setting up the auditorium for assemblies and such. And so Boys were allowed to set up tables, but girls were only allowed to set up chairs. And there were many more girls than boys in my class. So the tables were taking forever. There was also an odd number of boys in my class. So two boys would be on each table and there'd always be one just kind of standing there by the tables. And so I would go over and start helping. And the uh, 
only male teacher at the school, Mr. Helmrich, who was very strict, would come over and say, you're not supposed to move the tables. And I was like, but there are so many girls setting up chairs and the tables are not heavy. He's like, I don't care. You you can't move the tables. And I was like, well, I'm going to keep moving the tables. And I was a goody two shoes. This was like my only act of rebellion. And so it was that, that sort of thing where like the one thing where I stuck to my guns and uh, I don't remember if I got in trouble for that or not, but um, I think my mom worked for the, the rectory next door and they would they like, can you talk to your daughter? And she's like, fine, I'll talk to her. And she didn't really. <laughs> <laughs> the conversation so far has led me to one question that I've been asking of every writer from feminist fairy tales, which is broadly speaking, what does feminism mean to you? Now you have talked about this aspect of feminism that sort of introduced you to the idea as it could actually really realistically apply to your life. Is that a fair way of putting it? Yeah. Yeah. I'd say so. Pushing back against the idea that uh, women and marginalized people only can do these certain things and that women and marginalized people can't do these other things and pushing back and saying, well, actually we we can why can't we why shouldn't we we're just gonna do them and by the way we don't actually need to ask your permission to do them yeah so forget you people who would tell us otherwise (laughs) yes (laughs) so what can you tell us about your retelling of rumpelstiltskin uh, without spoiling anything for the audience so when, when I thought of Rumpelstiltskin as a possible story, I was running through the story beats in my head and something that I thought of that had not actually occurred to me before. Uh, and I went and I read a few versions of the story and nowhere was it mentioned why Rumpelstiltskin wants these kids in the first place. Because like the basic story of Rumpelstiltskin is girl's father tells King she can spin straw into gold. King locks girl in tower, telling her to spin straw into gold. Old man shows up and says, hey, I can do that for you. And she says, cool, please do. And this happens two more times. uh, And each time she has to give him something. And the last time she has to promise him her firstborn child. And when Rumpelstiltskin shows up to collect the kid, she's like, no, I don't actually want to give him to you because he's my kid. And, And Rumpelstiltskin says, well, then you have three days to figure out my name. And if you can't, I take your kid. So... In some versions, she goes into the woods and overhears him singing various obvious songs to himself, uh, wherein he discloses his name to the world. Sometimes she sends a messenger out and the messenger overhears. She tells the old man his name. He gets mad, flies into a rage and disappears. Um, And so it's just one of those things where I was thinking, wait, why does Rumpelstiltskin want these children? Is he putting them to work? Is he eating them? Does he actually care for them and raise them as his own? Why does he want them? So I started thinking about that. And then I started thinking about how, if you are a person like me, being married or adopted or whatever into a royal family, uh, mostly married, would really stink. Because what do we know about royal families? It's passed through blood. Therefore, you have to have kids. And you don't really get a choice, especially if there is, you know, if you're the only one to give heirs, that's it. That's your life. You live in a castle and you have a whole bunch of privileges and and riches and all that kind of stuff, but you have to have children. And to me, 
no thanks i uh, i'm good where i am and so thinking what if what if this person whose father really screwed her over is faced with hey this terrible man locked me in a tower for 3 days and now i have to marry him and have his children all of that is terrible none of that sounds like a thing i want i never wanted kids in the first place but if i don't promise to give him a kid I die. So there were some stakes there and I thought, oh, I can do something with this. <laughs> and there were um there were a few different angles I thought about taking one of which I had a feeling would not go over well at all. So I abandoned that one and I finally landed on something wherein Rumpelstiltskin was an interesting character but he wasn't a male savior sort of deal where the woman in question kind of has to figure out how to save herself rather than have someone do it for her in as much as she's able to while locked in a series of towers full of straw for no reason why these towers are full of straw weird who knows why does the king have three towers full of straw like at all times (laughs) (laughs) thank you for sharing all that. that i mean it's really interesting how you constructed that so you said that when you were writing rumpelstiltskin a retelling you considered an angle that wouldn't go over well Would you mind sharing what that angle was? Sure. One of the angles I thought about taking was that she would agree to have this child so the king wouldn't kill her, basically. And she has it. Rumpelstiltskin shows up to take the kid. She's like, okay, cool, take him. And he's like, wait, what? He's like, yeah, I don't. I don't want children, so you can have them. And then I thought, boy, people would get real mad if I did that. Um, (laughs) And then I was thinking about it. And, you know, story-wise, I couldn't actually make it work. Mm. That was my idea for a long time. That's what I was going to do. And then I thought, well, A, this makes her a little less sympathetic, probably, to the average viewer. Mm -hmm. Viewer? Yeah, sure. We have viewers uh, on the radio. (laughs) The average listener, perhaps. And then just, again, with the with the story structure that I was working with and the, the way that the story had been structured up until then, that it didn't actually work. So I had to th- come up with something else. And what I came up with actually worked a lot better and made it less, perhaps, confrontational and less controversial, I would say. Hmm. A little safer, perhaps. So you... You had already written a portion of the story when you came to switch from the one angle to the other? Yeah, I didn't really plan anything out. I just started how I usually do by writing jokes, like doing bits on the page and seeing what happened. It started out much different that the main character was actually narrating from like a flashback perspective. And then I got maybe two pages in to go, no, I hate this. This is terrible. Uh, so I went back and I started over. And so I got about halfway through and I thought, well, I guess eventually I'm going to have to figure out how this thing ends. And then I couldn't figure out how the thing would end. And I panicked about it. And then uh, someone else in the coil project was like, how about, how about you do this? And I thought, darn it. That's a really good idea. Shoot. I'm going to have to do that. <laughs> That person was Patrick Mullen. So thanks, Patrick. (laughs) (laughs) 
Well, that's really interesting. You mentioned you you usually start by writing bits on the page. And what does writing the individual bits do for you? And how can you use that? Hmm. Good question. What I'm trying to do is I'm trying to make something happen. So what I try to do when I write anything is get to know my characters first. So I need to know how they talk to each other. And I need to know how they just are. So I put two people on a page and have them talk to each other. And this sounds like just writerly nonsense. And I really apologize because it is writerly nonsense. But a lot of the time I will have a plan for one of my characters to do a certain thing. And then by the time it gets to the point where they need to do that thing, they wouldn't do that thing anymore. (laughs) They have become a different person than they started out in my mind they were going to be because I write in a linear fashion. I can't start in the middle and then add a beginning and an end. I have to start at the beginning and end at the end, which is a lot of editing as I go. It's infuriating, but I found that if I come up with an end more than half the time, it wouldn't end that way anymore by the time I get to the end. And if I start with an end and write backwards, I don't have a basis for the characters. So there's no personality that I'm writing to. So I just have to let them talk to each other. And normally it's just two people saying stupid nonsense to each other and being very silly and telling jokes. And then sometimes, you know, I'll go back and add actual, you know, sincerity in there um, (laughs) if I have to. Uh, And there is some sincerity. It's not all, not all goofs in Rumpelstiltskin. There's some, it gets serious at times. And characters, you know, grow and change and like people do. It's not all yucks and chuckles. Not all yucks and chuckles. The story is called Rumpelstiltskin, a retelling as part of the Feminist Fairy Tales podcast. And our guest today was the writer Erica Smith. Thank you for joining us on the program, Erica. Oh, thank you for having me.
Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it, or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz. And how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.